Once again, I'd like to welcome everyone to the worship of the Almighty and welcome to the Congregation of Faith Reformed Baptist Church. I would like to read once again the one verse from the first chapter, verse number three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. We've read chapter four and chapter 4 is the beginning of the second apocalyptic vision in this letter. I would like to review a little bit of what we've already gone through because we have seen one complete vision. In the, uh, in the introduction of this particular book, which is a very difficult book for some, but if we keep ourselves above the fray, if we keep ourselves above the details, I think that we can walk away with an understanding of some great truths. The first vision that we looked at had to do with the Apostle John being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he heard a voice, and when he looked to see what the voice, who the voice was speaking and who it was, he saw a vision, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ walking among his churches. And he saw a great, shall we say, image of the Lord Jesus, his white hair, his eyes burning with flames, his feet with burnished brass. He had the robe of a high priest in white, and he walked among candlesticks. I can only imagine they were like torches. But he said at the very end of this particular image of who Christ was, that the, that the torches, the candlesticks, were his churches. And so if we just look at what we were seeing, Christ is saying, I see their works, I understand where they are, and I walk among them. And this vision starts at the time of Christ when he came and ends at the time when he comes again, because he walks among his people now. He tells us he knows our works. He says, this is what I understand of you. He gives us of himself his own description. I am the one who can see. I am the one who walks among you. I am the one with the sword in my mouth. And to every one of us, he describes himself as what we need. He gives all of his churches the commendations that they need. Some were not even receiving commendations because they needed more rebuke. He knows what to tell us and what we need to change. He offers us the solution of what those problems are. And he tells us the consequences. And then he never forgets to give us the promises. He that overcomes, he will then allow them to wear the crown of life, to be with him in glory. All these things are done in this vision. And it goes from the time of the first coming to the time of the second coming. And the second part of this first vision has to do with an individualized letter sent to seven churches. Now these seven churches, just the very idea that there were seven, gives us an idea that this was a complete understanding of all of God's churches. Every one of them had individual problems. Some were the only problem they had is that they were just small in strength, like the church in Philadelphia. They were very small, but they were very pleasing to God. In Ephesus, we saw that they were very good in their doctrine. They were very good in their teaching, but they left one thing out, that Christ was not loved above all. 
In Smyrna, we see that they served God, but they were encouraged to serve him without fear and without compromise to the world. That was their problem. They allowed some selfish passions to cause the church to go in keeping the passions of the world. This was the church where they were warned about Balaam, about the Nicolaitans. That warns them that they should not serve God like a mercenary, that they should not be expected to be paid, and that they would never serve God unless they had some profit from it. The church in Pergamum was the church that said that our Lord said to them, you must repent of what you have failed in, or else I will remove your candlestick. And so every one of our churches throughout history, even in Titusville, even throughout the history of today, they must be warned and to listen to what the Spirit is saving to the churches, because if they will not correct themselves, their church will be removed. The church in Thyatira, he said to them, I do not want you to be tolerable of any false teaching and heresy. We need to be intolerable people, but we do need to tolerate. You see, we, we, we just need to know which one. We need to know what to tolerate and what to be intolerant of. And he says, I expect you to be intolerant of false teaching and that we need to be able to recognize heresy. And I'll tell you this one bit of advice. You can recognize heresy only if you know the truth. Being an expert in truth will allow the heresies to stand out. Don't study heresies. They don't need to be studied. Study the truth. The church in Sardis. The lesson was this. Always place Christ first. You must please Christ before the world. The last of the lessons in this particular church was this. You need to keep his word and own his name. Now, every church and all the promises and all the warnings, we can learn from every one of them because they all ended with this. If you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says, listen to what the Spirit says. And every one of us, we could have people in our own congregation, people from Sardis, people from Laodicea, people from Philadelphia. Everyone needs to hear. Everyone needs to say to themselves, if the shoe fits, I need to wear it. I need to repent if I need to repent. But we also need to have confidence and faith. If you have but little strength and you love Christ, then he says, you will conquer and you will overcome. Do not fear. And last of all, the church in Laodicea, their great danger was the, the, the self-deception. The self-deception. He said, you thought you were rich. You thought you had great gain. And yet you were still wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And he said, I counsel you to buy of me bread without water, gold to be refined. And so all these things were, were told, to them, told to us during this vision. And they are told to us even now. We, from, this, uh, from these lessons, we learned some very easy to understand applications. We understood this, that Christ is ruling his kingdom. He is ruling his churches. We are ambassadors that, that we represent Christ, and he is doing it exactly the way he planned it. There is no plan B with God. He is doing it right the first way. He is leading and ruling his kingdom exactly the way he desires to do it. And Christ is walking among us now. He is encouraging us to enjoy the presence of God and to be involved in glorifying God with our lives and with our lips and with our heart. Christ has shown himself to be the author of our salvation. 
He is abounding in grace toward us. All the things that seem to be in chaos to us, everything that seems to be overwhelming to us, Christ is saying that he is in control. He sees with his eyes. He walks with his feet among his people. And he wants us to understand that he is in control. The, there is a guarantee given to us. There is a seal that Christ himself is the seal of that promise to us. He is the one that is the amen to all of God's promises. He is the seal of the Holy Spirit is given to each and every one of us. Each and every one of us has the working of the Holy Spirit within us that presses upon our hearts the very image of Christ to conform us into who he is. And that is that great promise to be saved from the power of sin and the things of this world. So we shall have those promises. And what are these promises? To inherit all things in Christ that Christ and God will be our great reward. And so these are the things that we've learned. Now, if you recall, we went through a kind of an overview of the book of Revelation. And so you can just see, I just told you all about that very first vision. From the very beginning that John saw Christ walking among his churches, we saw the individualized preamble to the letters sent to the seven churches and how that the remaining book is going to be included in that letter sent to the churches. But what we have now remaining at the, at the chapters 4 through the end of the book are the remaining six apocalyptic visions. So we have seen one vision, and now we are going to go to the second vision. The second vision will be found in chapters 4 through 8. Chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to verse 8, verse 1. But verse 8, verse 2 starts the next vision. But the next vision that we'll be looking at, which we will start this morning, Lord willing, is God's throne and the seven seals. And so today we'll be looking at what happens when God allows us to see and understand what is in God's throne. After this, the third vision will be the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets will be from verse uh, 2 of chapter 8 to verse 11, I mean verse 19 of chapter 11. And this these seven trumpets has to do with the announcing and the warnings of coming events. The end of the seventh trumpet ends with this. Christ reigns forever and ever. Remember, every one of these visions has a beginning and an end. They begin with the coming of Christ. They end with the coming of Christ. The first advent, the second advent. The first coming, when he came, become flesh, the last one when he comes in judgment. The next vision, vision number four, has to do with the information found in chapter 12 through chapter 14, verse 20. These are describing the characteristics of the spiritual warfare and our salvation throughout all this time, from the time that Christ came to the time when he comes back again. They include understanding that there is going to be a war between the woman and the dragon, between Christ and and Satan. There's going to be a beast that comes up out of the out of the sea. In other words, there will be organizations and governments that hate God and will work against him and war against him. There will be a beast coming out of the land, a beast of false religion. There will be all types of heresies that will war against Christ and his church. And we'll also see in that vision of the characteristics of warfare the Lamb himself will stand and lead his people. And his people will be understood and known that they follow him wherever he goes. 
It ends in judgment, the great judgment of God. And we see that when the angels come and reap the grain from the earth, and they are stored in God's granary. But the grapes of wrath are going to be reaped and put into the winepress of God's wrath. That's how it ends. That's how it's going to end. It will end in the judgment. The next vision, vision number five, will be the bowls of judgment from chapters 15 through chapter 16, verse 21. This vision of the seven bowls of judgment are going to show us how God is going to judge this world during this present evil time. We need to understand that this will be very similar to the same images we saw when God delivered his people from Egypt. There was God's people in the land of Goshen, and there were the, 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 the slave owners in Egypt. And when God sends these bowls of judgment, we need to understand that God's people will be on the earth, but what God sends as a curse to the ungodly, it will be a blessing to the godly. We need to understand that the savor of the gospel, which is, light on, which is life unto life, is going to be a savor of death unto death to the wicked. When God sends forth his gospel that preaches against sin, the world will hate it, but God's people will love it. What is light to the world and that is light to the God's people will be a, a, a darkness to the world. The same loving God who shines his grace upon the people of the world will melt the hearts like butter. But to the world, they will look at God and become hardened like clay. And God's people will say, here am I, send me. But the world will say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? These will come like curses and plagues upon the world. But the same word of God that curses the world blesses God's people. We can see that this is how these visions are enabling us to see from the beginning to the end, all of it repeating over and over again, that we might understand from different viewpoints what we are living through right now. The last vision that we look at is when God is saying, I will bring a new heaven and a new earth. This vision once again starts at the time when Christ came and became flesh and died for our sins and ends when Christ comes back in judgment. It begins with the declaration of the defeat of Satan and death. Do you not remember the words of Christ when he said, I saw Satan falling down to the earth. That is when the atonement came and freed people from their sins by the gospel. There was a time when the gospel was nothing but shadows and types. When people would look at the people of Israel and they'll say, that people, have a, they have a great God. But the types and the shadows were ripped away and the truth came out in full force when the gospel said, the Gentiles can now hear the, what used to be in shadows. We now hear clearly that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and that all men everywhere are commanded to repent and to believe the gospel. And from that time, Satan was bound because he had no power to overcome the gospel. The, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going, to re, is going to release them from their sin. And it ends with God in heaven, reigning from his throne. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The tree of life is revealed once again. And there is a declaration. There is no more curse. We see Christ revealed in his power in every one of these visions. It is the same repeated truth. And why is it? Because God knows that he repeats the things that are important. We need to see them over and over again. We can understand that even in Hebrew poetry, 
Things will be repeated so that you may understand. Instead of an exclamation point, he says it twice. And when it comes to the apocalyptic visions, he says it seven times. A complete understanding of how we can understand how we are safe in the hands of God. All the things that come against us will come to naught. He controls this world from the whirlwind. When the world says, how, who can be in control of this? God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. He is the one that's in control. He is our God. And so let's begin this next vision. Chapter 1, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now I want to emphasize one of the things that you may have overlooked when I read that. Christ is speaking here. It is the same one that John said, I heard a voice like a trumpet. And when he went to see the voice, it was Christ walking among his churches. This same voice, Christ himself, is saying to John. And John immediately was in the Spirit. Now, I don't know if there was a time lapse between the first vision and the second vision, but it appears to me that he was in the first vision in the Spirit. And now he became in the Spirit. So they may have been maybe, I don't know, some time lapse. However, I just don't know. But I can say this. The voice said come up here. And how did he say it? From an open door. Did we not read among one of, the, one of the letters that says, Christ has the key of David, and he opens a door that no man can shut, and he shuts a door that no man can open. Only he can open this door. Now, how many have gone through this door? How many have ever seen this door? Well, we have read about the Apostle Paul. He said that he was able to, he had gone up into Heaven, the third heaven, saw things that he was not allowed to speak of. We have understood that Isaiah saw in the throne room of God where the smoke filled the temple. And, 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 and it was just completely awesome to him where he saw seraphims, creatures with six wings. Also, Ezekiel saw the glory of God and saw what he called cherubims, the same type of creatures. And so we can see that Others have seen and have been able to go through this door, but only if Christ opens it. Only if he opens that door and says, come up and see. And then he says, come and see and understand what must take place. Now, if we understand one thing, it must be this. We are responsible creatures who respond with our own hearts. We can say yes, we can say no. But I'll say this. God has his way in the whirlwind. God has his way. He is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God. The voice of Christ said this, these things must take place. They must take place. We are not living in a world where we say, I wonder what might happen. I wonder what's going to happen. I know this, God is on his throne. He is on his throne. And that is the central image of this whole vision. We come and we see a vision. And what is it? It is a throne. Let's continue to read. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. What a simple verse it is. How easy it is to see. And yet, that one verse is the central idea of the entire vision. I saw a throne, and it stood. Let me tell you, in this world, kingdoms come and go. Tyrants come and go. 
We'll see uh, 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 pharaohs. We're going to see uh, Napoleons. We're going to see Stalins. They come and they go. But there is a throne that stands in heaven and it never goes. God is on his throne. It is the center of this vision. Now, it used to be that people would live in this world and they would say, well, look at this great world. It seems like it's flat. It must be flat. But then we've learned differently, didn't we? But it used to be that people would look at the sun and they'd look at the moon and it travels across the sky and they used to think that the earth was the center of the universe. Well, then they learned differently, didn't they? There are some things that never change, though. Men seem to think that everything revolves around them. But I'm telling you, it does not. Everything is around God. God is in the center of everything. And he doesn't just say, I want to be there. I want you to think that I'm about, you know, I want you to think of me first. No, he is in the center of everything. His throne is there. He is the Almighty. It stands there. He is sovereign. There is none that can remove him from his throne. Do you think at any time that we can look to heaven and look to the throne of God and he is not on that throne? Did he ever take a vacation? Did he ever say, oh, excuse me for a minute, I have to leave? Never, never is God off his throne. It is there for all his people, all that he has done. Every time we cast our eye to God's throne, he is on it and he is ruling. He is the one seated on the throne. We cannot unseat him. The world cannot take him off the throne. He is there and everything revolves around him. All the good that there is comes from him. All the righteousness comes from him. He is the wellspring of all that is holy and good. If there's any good in this world, you can trace it back to God. He is the author of it and he deserves glory for it. And he deserves the honor of it. This world is, in, is steeped in sin. It is, it is killed by sin. This present evil world is dead to God. And yet by faith, we know that God is on his throne. Verse number three. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow. And he had the appearance of emerald. Now, do I know what these things mean? Look, I'm not that smart. Uh, this is a vision. But I do, I do get the understanding of this. Can you describe God? Can you have words that really give us the essence of who God is? And you know what John does? He gives us colors. He gives us precious stones. Now I know that, that these are insufficient things to tell us who God is. But God has said, look at this vision and then allow your hearts to understand there is a stone that is called Jasper, and as far as I know, most of the theologians or most of the commentators say that this particular type of stone is opaque or translucent. You can see through it, but it has marvelous colors in it, most of which are white. And then the carnelian, which is really like a ruby, deep red. Now, why would we see the color of deep red? Why would John, why would Christ reveal himself that there is one on the throne and notice how John never mentions his name he is almost as though he feels himself unworthy to say his name he says the one on the throne 
and when he saw the vision, it is though there are bright colors of white and red, and then a rainbow around him that is green. I can only imagine that the whiteness here, the clarity here, is that God is perfectly, clearly, to the very depths of all infinity, holy and righteous and good and pure. I can only say that there is a redness to him because we as creatures want to see him, but we require something that even requires the lifeblood of allowing our life to live before God. Our life is in our blood and it requires that blood that God should say, if you want to be in my presence, there must be blood. There must be a giving of life. There is a God who can only be described in this way. It may be judgment, it may be atonement, it may be both. But let's take a look at this rainbow. When I think of a rainbow, the first thing I think of is Noah. That was the very first rainbow after great judgment. And what was that rainbow given for? As a concept, it was given to say, I have promised. I have promised not to destroy this world by water again. And here we have a God sitting on his throne with a promise that looks, well, a, a rainbow is multicolored, but here it says it's green. Now, I don't know what that means, but it seems to me when I was a young man, I loved spring because all the things that began to grow were the most vibrant color of green. It was the first thing I could think of when life becomes to grow. And when God says, I have promised eternal life. And here we have a God sitting on his throne. And on that throne, it's an awesome sight. There is around God, our promise given to us, his promise to us that there is life from the Almighty. Chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white raiment, and with golden crowns on their heads. You wouldn't believe what all the commentators say. They all have very good ideas. They all have thoughts. And most of them, very complimentary, very good. I recommend reading uh, Beale, uh, Beaky. Uh, I, I recommend reading many people about this. But I'd have to say, I'm going to say this. I cannot be sure exactly what these things are, but I'm going to tell you my opinion on them. Some think that these people around the throne are arranged, that is, the crowns are sitting on thrones, that they may have been arranged in a circle. I listened to one man, and I read one man, it says, uh, God is here, and they're just encircling the throne. But others have said, it reminds him of how the children of Israel in the wilderness encamped around the tabernacle where they had four tribes on each side. But either way, these are thrones around the throne. And there are elders sitting on these thrones, 24 of them. And of, of all the numbers that we find in the scriptures, sometimes we read about the Trinity, the number three. Sometimes we read about the completeness of seven. Sometimes we repeat about the completeness of ten. But 24 is a very rare number that we find in the scriptures. But we also find that in the shadows of the Old Testament, we have 12 patriarchs. And that in the New Testament, where things come out into the open, we have 12 apostles. 
And we will find in chapter 21, when this city comes down out of heaven, that there will be three gates on either side, and above every gate will be the name of it will be a name of a patriarch. And there will be a foundation. In fact, there are 12 foundations, and on those 12 foundations are the names of the apostles. Now with that, I would say this. The world, when we began to understand the grace of God, how Abraham had his children, and God said, I'm going to show the world in these types and shadows, and the world, we see there is an entrance to God. And who brought that entrance to us? The shadows of the 12 patriarchs. But when we walk into the temple, we stand firmly upon the foundations of the gospel of the apostles. One is an entrance. One is a welcome sign. But when we walk into the temple, we stand upon the clearly preached gospel. I don't know what these things mean, but I can only tell you what I've read. And I can only tell you this, that around those thrones, there are elders that know that they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They either represent individuals, and they in turn may represent saints. God said in Christ that we shall be seated in heavenly places, and we shall rule with him. And here we have saints sitting on thrones around the throne of God, and they have crowns. Now, God rules, and He is a great judge, but He has entrusted many things in this world in the means of grace. And I'm going to explain again what I'm talking about with that. You've heard about in Congress where they will pass a law, and now they say, well, now that, to, now that we have this law passed, we have to figure out a way to get it done. They will then assign a Ways and Means Committee. Find out a way to get this done, and find out the means to get it accomplished. It usually requires money and a process. When it comes to the gospel, the preaching of the gospel are the means of salvation. It is how God, through his sovereign power, completely in control of everything, has by his sovereign will said, it shall be done in this manner. The preaching of the gospel, convicting the hearts of men to repent of sin and to cast their souls upon the atoning work of Christ and to love him with all his heart. These are the means of predestinated ways. We can rest upon that truth. We can cast our souls upon the stability of the Almighty, but saying, if we don't do it, it won't get done because if you do not repent, you will go to hell. But I'm not saying that salvation is in your hands. I'm saying that the means of grace require repentance of sinners, and it requires faith in Christ. And so what we have here is God is saying to the elders, you must preach, and you must reign on this earth. And how do they reign? They preach the law of God. It is like a rod of iron. It tells men, if you kill, you will be killed by the sword. If you sin against God, you will be judged. Some people only think that ruling has to do with having the, having the, the vision, or how shall we say, uh, sitting in a presidency, or sitting on, on a kingly throne, on an earthly throne. But I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with that. Remember what Christ said to Pilate, when Pilate said, are you a danger to me? Are you a king? And he said, if my servants were of this world, 
they would fight. But I'm telling you, God's kingdom is here. He reigns in our hearts. And his scepter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness that is preached goes thundering and rolling over this land. And it's like lightning and thunderings. These elders have, have, have crowns upon their head. But it is not the type of crowns that the world can see. Christ has given the authority to his gospel preachers, to his elders on this world. He has committed to them the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And we are stewards of that gospel. And in our churches and in our congregations, we proclaim the power of God to save from sin. Verse number five. Now, I'm surely not going to get done through this whole chapter. But if you'll come tonight, you can hear the rest of it. Okay, chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peal of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, the first thing that reminds me of is when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were taken to the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai. And when God came down and touched the earth, there were thunderings and lightnings and there were peals of thunder. And even the pen people trembled so much that they told Moses, we, can't, we, we cannot go up. Please go for us and let not God see. Let, let us not be destroyed by God. I'm telling you that even in the presence of God's throne, there is a God who should be afraid. Who should be, you know, we, the world should be afraid of this God. And when the world sees this throne, they see lightning and thunderings. And truly the holiness of God against the sinfulness of man is a fearful thing. It is a, it is a scary thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of an angry God. But even with this pealing of thunder and even with the thunder and the shaking of the ground, there is before him, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I just want to remind you that there is before him a sea of crystal that is calm as glass. There is in the presence of God the, queer, the, the quaking and the fear, but there's also a peace and calmness. There is, with this, seven torches of fire. This reminds me of the kind of light that was given in the tabernacle, given in the temple, where they, uh, the menorah was standing and with the seven lights. And of course, in the types and the shadows, it was there to provide light in the holy place before the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. But that is the light that is provided. But here we see that these are torches in the very throne room of God. And I, I wouldn't even say it's a room. I would say before the throne of God, which is in the center of all things, there are the seven torches that are described here as the seven spirits of God. Now we just read about the seven letters sent to the churches and we understood that Christ walked among his churches and that there are seven spirits of God and why seven I thought there was God was triune I thought there were three father son holy spirit but this implies to us this implies to us that the work of the holy spirit is complete that he has not left out any of our needs and when God examines the heart of men he will address every single one of them 
and he is there shining bright. And these seven fires allow the elders and the creatures that are there to see God the way God should be seen by us, meeting our needs. God is now on his throne and his spirit is ministering to this world in all of our needs. And we are aware of his holiness, of the great thunderings and lightnings, and yet we are close to God in peace and tranquility. There are seven torches that represent the great work of God toward his people. With this, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this to a close and we'll begin the next sermon uh, with continuing in this vision. But I would like to cover verse number six. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and eyes behind. Now, I may not get all the way through this verse, but I want to cover at least the very first half. This sea of glass reminds me of the golden brazen labor that was before the holy place in the tabernacle. This is where the priests would come and wash their hands. And yet, it was a very large basin of water. And it was before the, the, the candlesticks, right before the uh, Holy of Holies. But here we have a description that says, it was like a sea of glass. Now, in the other visions that we're about to look at, we will see that there's going to be an awful beast come out of the sea. There's going to be, as it were, this idea that the sea is like a sea of humanity, and it will offer up what men want to do. Isaiah describes sinful men as a troubled sea, stirring up the muck and mire of the bottom, and the troubleness of the sea cannot be satisfied. But here we have a vision of a sea that is completely calm and clear. We understand that God has a way of taking troubled sinners and providing the grace they need to endure all the hardships of this life and to understand that everything that God does would be done completely well. As a matter of fact, let me use his words. He looked at all that he created and it was very good. He was very pleased with what he did. Because in this vision, God is being presented to us as the one who was, is, and is to come. And he is the creator of all things. He is the creator of all things. And it's not as though we're supposed to walk away from this saying, well, God made this. Okay, that's all I'm supposed to think about. No, no. God has made all things. That includes all things that happen. And we are creatures enslaved by sin. We have the turmoil raising up within us, rising up within us, a muck and sin. And yet God says, in my presence, you will have peace. The atoning work of Christ brings peace to the turmoiled heart. And we rest in Christ before him. And we can see that his mighty hand began at the very beginning. And it works to the very end. And all of us can rest in peace in his presence before the throne of God. And we see that he is the almighty. And we rest in our God. And so this is what the vision is telling us. These are your problems. 
hear what the Spirit says. Mm -hmm. And now walk in the throne room of God and see that He is in charge. Mm -hmm. In the other visions, we're going to be seeing a lot of scary things. But the thing that you need to know first is that God is on His throne. And we can rest in peace before Him. We can be as calm as a crystal sea. And all that God does is so easy to Him. Everything, all that He did from the beginning to the very end, it's easy to Him. Every molecule, every subatomic particle, everything that's ever existed, whether it spins in speeds that we cannot even comprehend at a micro uh, level, even to the vastness of space where galaxies are millions of light years from each other. Everything that has been transpired, God knows its path from the very beginning to the very end. Nothing escapes the almighty knowledge and power of God. And with that knowledge, he says, the sinner shall be at peace in front of me. And what do we do with this knowledge? We rest in it. We rest in the mighty power of God before His throne. That's what we do with the preaching of God on His throne, who never gets off that throne. So brothers and sisters, we will in this life live through tribulation. And we will have great things rise up against us. There will be governments against us. There will be religions against us. There will be all plagues all around us. But it will not touch us. We will be living in the light. And God will have His hand on us. He is on his throne. That's what this vision is telling us. God is on his throne. So tonight, we're going to continue this because there are two things to see in this chapter. Number one, God is on his throne. And number two, there is worship in that area. There is worship there. We must be in the throne of God and we must worship God the way God wants us to worship him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and praise him for his power for his mighty gospel that he's given to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, you are the Almighty. There is none beside you. There is none like you. You have from the very beginning called the end. And we praise you for your greatness, for the mighty things that you have done, for the creation that you have from the very beginning said was very good. And you sat down and you rested. And now we can see the mighty power that we may rest in, that we may have our hearts in the hand of our Christ. We are in your hand and no one is going to be plucked out of them. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for the lightnings and thunderings that awakened our hearts. We thank you that now we have been given the knowledge that we can be in your presence under the wing of our Christ, covered by his blood, that we are in him. We are now seated in heavenly places. So, Father, we pray. May all of your churches preach your gospel today. May the gospel be made very clear today. May your people be blessed with your presence. May sinners be saved from their sin. We ask these things for the glory of Christ and for your glory and Holy Spirit for your glory. May these things be done that our eyes might be lifted to you and you alone. We pray this in our Lord's name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen.